0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have uh, your Bibles, I believe the text is in your bulletin. Uh, This is a sober passage in the Word of God. You don't want to be in 1 Kings 19. You want to be in 1 Kings 18. That's literally a mountaintop experience. That's where Elijah single-handedly faces down the king and the prophets of Baal, and God sends fire from heaven to consume the altar and the sacrifice and to vindicate his name. That's where you want to be. You want to be in 1 Kings 18. You don't want to be in 1 Kings 19. Or, or maybe you want to be in 1 Kings 21, where God judges wicked king Ahab for his dealings with Naboth in stealing his vineyard. That's the passage Uh, on which R.G. Lee, the famous pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, preached his sermon, Payday Someday. He preached it thousands of times across the United States and around the world. It begins with these words, Ahab was the vilest toad to ever squat on the throne of Israel. It's a rather gripping sermon, as you might imagine. You want to be in 1 Kings 18 or you want to be in 1 Kings 21, you don't want to be in 1 Kings 19. But we get there. And we need to ask ourselves the question, how how did Elijah get from the victory on Mount Carmel to where he ends up in 1 Kings 19 wanting just to die alone? How do you go from victory to despair? We need to ask that question. And before we read God's Word, let's pray and again ask His help and blessing as we study it. Our Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but Your Word stands forever sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it beginning in 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then He was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I am no better than my fathers. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria." And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. I I wonder what are the greatest losses in your life. What your unfulfilled dreams, your unsatisfied and unsatisfiable desires and yearnings, and longings are i wonder what your greatest disappointments and discouragements are i don't ask you if you have them we all do the the question is what do we do with them and i wonder how you've responded to them i wonder i wonder what you've cried in the deep darkness of the night through blinding, hopeless tears. And I I wonder what you hoped for after you asked why and you didn't hear a response. I wonder how you've responded to a life that you've longed for slipping between your fingers or losing what you most cared about. It's amazing how the Lord works in his choicest servant's lives in just that way. Yesterday, while I was teaching, I learned that one of the students had actually been pastored by a friend of mine named Jay in Delaware. He's one of the finest men that I know, one of the best students I've ever taught. I remember when we went to the hospital the day that his son was born, and the doctors came in, and we were filled with joy in the room, and the doctors came in with very sad, serious faces, and we knew something was wrong. And they said to Jay and Melody, Your son Jacob has cystic fibrosis. It was a crushing diagnosis. When Jacob was seven years old, he realized that something was wrong with him. Jay and Melody had never told Jacob what he had. And Jacob asked his dad, Dad, is there something wrong with me? Am, am I sick? Am I going to die? And at seven years old, Jay had to sit Jacob down and explain to him, Jacob, you're not going to live as long as other people live, and you're going to struggle with this illness all your life. And Jay wrote me a letter about this, and here's one of the things that he said to me in the letter. Jacob is doing well spiritually, and he's holding his own physically. At seven, he has profound spiritual insight. I had to tell him when he was six years old that he would likely die sooner than most people, but that I would not pity him because God had a plan for his life that was perfect and that the Lord Jesus himself only lived to be about 33 years old or so, and he did more than any other human being. I also told him that I could not help him out of his problem but that his heavenly Father could. All this said with tears made a profound impact on him that by grace has remained to this day. He has joy in the Spirit as far as I can tell, and he reads according to the Robert Murray McChain Bible reading plan four chapters a day. And then Jay ended the letter this way, I would rather have him born again than well. And I thought, Lord, why do you put a servant like that through this? But it's just like the Lord, isn't it? It's just like the Lord to to deal with his choicest servants in that day. It got harder for Jay and Melody because just a few years later, Jay's wife, Melody, was diagnosed with reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is a chronic neurological condition which leaves her in constant debilitating pain. She can't touch her husband. She can't touch her children. She had to be put in a coma in order for them to bring some relief to the pain that she was experiencing. And again, I said, Lord, why do you do this to your best people? Or I think of my mentor, David Calhoun, who meant so much in my life and Poured the love of Christ in me as a seminary student and taught me about the history of the church, and has been through six occurrences and recurrences of cancer. After the third recurrence of cancer, the treatment had actually damaged his heart, and so he not only had cancer, he had heart failure. He wrote to me one day that he had said to his wife Ann, It would be nice to have only one terminal illness. And then he said, But God knows best as always. Why does the Lord do that with his choicest servants? Well, we're going to learn about that because that's what he does with his choice servant Elijah in this passage. And I want you to see two or three things. First of all, I want you to see what is the root of Elijah's fear. Then I want you to see what is the root of Elijah's discouragement. And then I want you to see where Elijah's real hope comes from. The root of his fear, the root of his discouragement, and where his real hope come from. This is very important for us to understand in the discouragements and trials of our own lives. First of all, look at verse 3 in chapter 19. Notice after the messenger comes from Jezebel with the death threat, we read these words, Then he was afraid. Now just pause with me here. Is this... The Craven Fear of a Coward. No way. Yesterday, he had stood on Mount Carmel by himself, facing down the king and hundreds of prophets of Baal and thousands of false worshipers of idols gathered around. By himself he had faced them down. This man is not a coward. He's courageous. He's brave. If I want to go into a fight, this is a guy I want to go into a fight with. And not only did he win the contest, he personally slaughtered the prophets of Baal. This is Rambo the prophet. This is not a coward. So where does the fear come from? It comes from lost hope. It comes from discouragement. Now, now how do I I know that? Look at the passage. Notice what he says the first time in the wilderness when he lies down or sits down under the broom tree in verse 4. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, what does that mean? It means that he feels like his ministry has failed. Look look back at chapter 18, the last verse and the last sentence. You remember how chapter 18 ends? After he defeats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, the king is on his way back to Jezreel in his chariot, and Elisha hoists up his robe, wraps it around his waist, and outruns the king in his chariot to Jezreel. Now ask yourself a question. Why did Elijah run to Jezreel? Jezreel is the capital. It's where the king's palace is. Elijah thinks that after this spectacular victory of God on Mount Carmel, nationwide revival is going to break out. You know, what what was Elijah's great message? The Lord is God. Not the Baals, but the Lord is God. And what did he want to see happen in his ministry? He wanted to see the northern kingdom of Israel turn away from idols and turn back to the one true and living God. That is what he lived for. And he thought after Mount Carmel, it's going to happen and I want to be in the capital when it happens. And I wonder if you look at the beginning of chapter 19, when that messenger from Jezebel comes to him, I wonder if Elijah is thinking as the messenger approaches him, is God going to convert even her? I mean, is she sending me a message to say, okay, Elijah, I've been wrong all along. I shouldn't have been worshipping the Baals. I should have been worshipping the one true God. Is even she going to be converted? And then he opens the message and it says, you're a dead man. And suddenly we read, and he was afraid. Why? Because he's a coward? No. Because his hopes had been crushed. He felt his whole ministry had failed. I thought this was going to bring about the revival. I thought this was going to bring about the conversion of Israel and its failed and I just want to die because I've failed just like my father's the prophets before me I haven't been able to turn Israel back to God and I just want to die his fear comes from a loss of hope discouragement that's where it comes from now we'd still have to ask another question where does the discouragement come from this, now this hits home, close to home, folks, because this is the problem that we have. His discouragement comes from idolatry. Why do I say that? Because Elijah wanted God's plan to be different from the way it was actually working out. Elijah wanted his ministry to result in an immediate spectacular nationwide turning back to God and when it didn't he just wanted to die in other words he's discouraged because he's prayed the prayer not thy will but my will be done he wants his ministry to work out in a certain way he wants his life to work out in a certain way and it didn't work out in that way and now he just wants to die now look the things that he wanted were good he wanted god to be worshiped he wanted the one true god to be believed he wanted the false gods to be cast away that's a good thing but here's the thing friends you don't get to decide how god is going to use your faithfulness you know jesus prayer in the garden should be our prayer nevertheless Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, Elijah's whole ministry had been telling people, don't worship idols. But he had made an idol of how he wanted his ministry to work out. And God loves his servant Elijah too much to let him preach against idolatry while being an idolater himself. And so Elijah's fear comes from discouragement, but his discouragement comes from idolatry. It didn't work out the way that Elijah wanted it to work out. And you can see that the Lord understands that in the passage. When the Lord comes to him at Mount Horeb and tells him that he's going to pass by him, Notice the Lord comes first in earthquake, wind, and fire. In other words, in spectacular manifestations. The, the Lord is basically saying, Elijah, I know that what you wanted to happen, would, that there would be a spectacular turning of the people back to me immediately. But notice that the passage says God was not in the earthquake, wind, and fire. He was in a still, small whisper. And it's interesting, Elijah himself even understands that. Notice that Elijah doesn't even go out onto the side of the mountain until he hears the still, still small whisper. It's almost like Elijah is going, yeah, I know. I know. You're not doing it my way. You're not doing it with earthquake, wind, and fire. I know. You're in the still small voice. Okay, I'll go. And, and notice the despair with which he goes out. He wraps his cloak around his face. It's kind of hard to see when you've wrapped your cloak around your face. And he goes out, and God speaks to him in a still small voice. Now, you, you, you've already heard in, this, in the service today the, the passage that this is sort of of building all five. You remember back in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, Moses on this very mountain, because Sinai is the mountain, Horeb is the mountain range. Moses had asked God to show himself to him. Remember that? Show me, your, show me yourself, Lord. I want to see your glory. And God said, Moses, I can't show you my glory. It'd kill you. But I'll pass by you and let you see my back. And so I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock on Sinai and let you see the back of my glory pass by. Well, here's God coming to Elijah saying, Elijah, I'm offering you what I offered Moses. And Elijah is so discouraged, he wraps his cloak around his face. And then you're hoping that God is going to say something tender to Elijah, like he said to Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember, he says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, who's filled with loving kindness and shows mercy and compassion upon thousands. You know, you're hoping for some, please, Lord, give your servant some kind of encouragement. Throw him a bone, Lord. <laughs> and, and the Lord sidles up to Elijah in the still small voice and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And you're going, Oh, whew, Lord, that's hard. But I want you to understand the Lord's not being hard with Elijah here. The Lord is ruthlessly crushing his idolatry because he loves him. But I want you to see the tenderness with which the Lord treats this discouraged servant. The first place I want you to see it is when Elijah sits under that broom tree ready to die. Look back at verses 5 and 6. The Lord sends an angel to take care of him while he's out in the wilderness alone, wanting to die. And it, it, it's, it's quite amazing. You know, the Lord's in heaven, and he says, "Somebody go down there and cook that man a hot breakfast." And, and Elijah wakes up and there is, there's a hot breakfast with cool water in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. And he's so discouraged that he eats it and he drinks it and he just goes right back to sleep again. And so the Lord sends that angel again. To feed him again because he's going to need some food. He's got a long journey in front of him. And then you think that the Lord doesn't care about Elijah? But coming in the earthquake, wind, and fire, and that demonstration of spectacular power, what he's saying to Elijah is, Elijah, I know what you want. I'm not going to do it that way. But I know what you want. I care about your heart. And then the Lord sends Elijah back up to Damascus, and he says, appoint a new Syrian king, appoint a new king. Uh, king of Israel, and appoint a new prophet in your place. And again, that seems hard. It, it's like he's just going to put Elijah on the shelf. And indeed, this is really pretty much the end of Elijah's ministry. The, the rest of Elijah's ministry is minor stuff. He's hardly mentioned until we get to 2 Kings. Elisha is the main guy now. And you'd think, boy, that's hard, Lord. You know, this man has given you his whole life. He's loved you, and you're just putting him on a shelf. But again, the, the kindness is here. God's saying to Elijah, I don't, have to, I don't have to bring about my will through spectacular things. I can, I can bring it about through very ordinary things. A new king in Syria, a new king in Israel, a new a prophet in your place. In other words, we all need to learn... God doesn't need us to accomplish his will. I I love the prayer of Count Ludwig, uh, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravian movement that was so involved in world missions. You remember his prayer? Lord, I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That was his aspiration. I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten because the Lord can accomplish his purposes how he wants. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need Elijah. He doesn't need something spectacular. He can accomplish his will. But I want you to see something very tender that the Lord does for Elijah. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. And just let your eyes look at the first 14 or so verses of the chapter. It's the story of Elijah being taken up into heaven. And you remember how it happens? Um, The Lord sends him into the wilderness in order to be taken up. And Elijah goes down to Bethel. And he goes down to Jericho and then he crosses the Jordan out into the wilderness and at every stop along the way he tells Elisha, Elisha stay behind. And Elisha says no way, I'm with you. I'm staying with you every step of the way. And when they get out in the wilderness, Elisha asks something very audacious. He says, Elisha Elisha, what would you like me to give you? And Elisha says to Elijah, "Uh, I'd like a double portion of your spirit. Now that's You've got to have some chutzpah to ask that. You you understand Elijah did more miracles than any other prophet since Moses. So this is the second greatest prophet in the history of Israel, the greatest one since Moses. And Elisha says, I'd like to have double what you had. And then Elijah says this baffling word to him. He says, if you see me when I am taken, it will be so. But if not, you won't. What What does that mean? What's that all about? And they go out into the wilderness, and then suddenly the chariots of Israel appear in a whirlwind and fire, and he is taken up into heaven. Do you see what the Lord is doing? He's saying, Elijah... I know your heart, and I am bringing you home in whirlwind and fire. One of the two men in the Old Testament who will not die, Enoch and you. I'm bringing you home in whirlwind and fire like your heart has always wanted. And Elisha sees it. Now, why is that so important? It was important to God because of his love of his servant Elijah that Elisha would be able to come back and tell that to whoever wrote Second Kings so that you and me and every believer who has ever lived since would know that the God of Israel cares about the hearts of his people. But this isn't the last time we see Elijah in the Bible, is it? The next time we see Elijah is in Luke 9. You remember it? Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there with the inner circle of his disciples. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 31, who shows up there with him? Moses and Elijah. Two men whose ministry had been characterized by extraordinary power and faithfulness and both of their ministries Ended in failure and discouragement Do you remember how Moses goes? God takes him up Mount Pisgah Tells him to look into the promised land He says it's beautiful isn't it Moses? You're not going in oh, Lord Why even show it to him? And Elijah you know, Who wants to see this spectacular turning And God says not going to do it that way. And suddenly, there they are on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're looking into the face of Jesus. I really wonder how this played out in heaven. Uh, Moses and Elijah, I need you to go down and see something. And suddenly, and, and Scott read this earlier, didn't he, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6, suddenly Moses and Elijah are looking into the face of Jesus Christ where they see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ and it all becomes clear. Their hopes and dreams were too small. God had a bigger plan through their ministry than just the northern kingdom turning or the children of Israel getting into the promised land. He wanted men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from all around this globe coming to Jesus Christ in faith and worship. And now it all becomes clear to them. You see, that's where our hope is from. God will kick the legs out of any other hope, dream, or treasure that's not him. Because he loves you. He'll leave you with nothing but himself. Because that's all you need. Until we come to understand that God himself is our treasure and nothing else will suffice, until we learn that we are to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not lean on our own understanding, until we learn that it's not our will but his will that will be done, but his will will always be best for us, he will ruthlessly pursue our idolatry and leave us nothing but himself. And that's what he did with Elijah because he loved him. Well did James say in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man like us. So what are you going to do with your disappointments and discouragements? Our only hope is in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would work it deep into our hearts and that you would grant that we would love and trust and worship you alone and put our hope in nothing else. Our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.